Welcome to the Youpreneur Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Straub. The Youpreneur Podcast is in partnership with Score Broward, which is a nonprofit that's been helping entrepreneurs and small business owners start, develop, and grow their businesses for more than 52 years. The Youpreneur Podcast and Score, we interview influential entrepreneurs and executives here in Florida about their success. We'll gain insight into their lives, the struggles they've faced, how they've overcame, and advice they can give to people that are starting a business or getting into their industry. So if you own a business in Florida or you're thinking about starting one, this podcast is for you. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Happy to be here, man. I'm excited to have somebody here in Broward County uh, interviewing and uh, getting to learn a little about your business. You are the co-owner and president of We Do Web Content which uh, we were talking a little bit before the show. I love the fact that you actually have in the name of your company exactly what you do. I'm assuming was that by design or did you guys go through a couple other names as you were naming uh, We Do Web Content? We went through a few other names, but they all were very explicit on exactly what we did. So we uh, threw it out to some folks that we knew and this is the one that everybody chose and liked and it's been the, the brand for quite a while now, thank God. What made you actually decide? Because a lot of tech companies come up with these unique names, unique words that people haven't heard of before. And you decided to kind of put marketing inside the title. It sounds like that was a thoughtful and strategic decision. What made you do that? We wanted to make it easy. So I believe, and you know, we weren't global with our business, but we were definitely national when, when we started and opened up this business. I believe we were definitely content pioneers. We started when websites, people were still hiding keywords behind black text or, or white backgrounds to optimize for something. So when we launched our first actually personal friend and client's lawyer website, it was one of the first for the firm that developed the website to blow up the way it did. Like the amount of traffic, the comments about the content, the phone calls, I mean, just what happened there was something that that company had never seen before. And that's actually what catapulted us to actually deciding, wow, I think we might have a business model here to do other businesses. And fortunately, that company was very um, instrumental in helping us grow because they started feeding us clients that they couldn't convert or, or that just weren't performing well. And content became the backbone of everything that, that had to be done on websites. So us thinking of the name, it just, we did what was out there. We did it in a time where content started to become the most important thing online, you know, alongside SEO, but more people were talking about content. You're a digital marketing agency, but you focus heavy in on content and marketing strategies around that. Can you just talk a little bit about how you found that niche and a little bit about what you do? And then I'd love to start heading down your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, for sure. Talk a little bit about the company and a little bit more about you know, kind of your niche that you've built out in that. Because the digital marketing agency is a very competitive and busy space. It is actually very competitive and it's become even more so competitive. Even in our niche, when we started in our niche, we were the only content provider back then. So, you know, it was very easy for us to fall into a niche because we got invited to the conference where, you know, there were 200, 300 attorneys. We got to speak on stage, teach them about content, talk about the importance of content. And the owners of the conference were also pitching it, right? We can build a website for you. They would say, we can do all this native marketing, but without content, you're not going to get anywhere. So it was actually a very 
easy way for us to start building our business there and just sticking with that niche. You know, there's just so much opportunity in the legal space still, even with all the competition, that it didn't make sense to go into any other markets. We have just because of referral, just because of what we do, just because of us being able to turn it on in any other vertical, but we just haven't approached anything else. We are moving towards the medical industry, but even still, the ROI for doctors isn't as great as it is for for a law firm. So it's more the ROI is a lot easier for a law firm to see because of what we can translate into money based on what we develop. Like one page of content, 10 pages of content can bring a law firm or any business $200,000 a year very easily if done correctly. Tell um, me what you mean by content. So when we develop content, so I'll go backwards. Think of a website as your house. Think of the content as all the furnishings and everything that people come in to see when they go to your house. So we build what's called foundational content. So all the service areas for a law firm, car accidents, Uber accidents, truck accidents, bicycle accidents. It could also be the same thing for a t-shirt company. You know, all the types of t-shirts, color t-shirts, size of t-shirts, the brands that are on the t-shirts, right? So when you're building a website, you're building a silo of a theme for it. So we became really instrumental in building out the silos for how to develop and build a legal website so it converts. But having every piece of written content or video content on the website, that answers the user's query. So when you go to Google and do a search for something, you want to make sure you're not only on the first page, but showing up on the local map, showing up underneath the advertisements as an organic opportunity. So I said, what should I do after a car crash? I want to make sure my attorneys are showing up under those terms. So they're going back to their website and the website can convert them. So you take a look at, you know, whatever product you're selling, for example, you're talking about law firms and they're looking to work with, let's go with um, that personal injury and car accidents. I'm in a car accident. What do I go Google? And whatever I Google, you're making sure the content inside that website is answering that. So it drives up you in the search SEO. So it actually drives you higher up in the Google searches. So you're there. So you've kind of figured out, here's all the normal questions that people ask. Here's the frequently asked questions. And then built the content around that to drive your law firms up to be able to be seen first. Is that pretty much exactly? Exactly. So obviously, being in a niche allows you to become an expert in that area to really understand that, than opposed across multiple companies. You know, there's a common in business. People say there's riches in the niches, right? And so you found yourself becoming an expert in that area. Is it hard not to get distracted? Hard not to go jump in. You get a referral from a law firm. It's a doctor. You get a you know, somebody else that's a like you said a t-shirt company, or all of a sudden it's a storefront of a retail store. How just stay in your niche to continue to scale quickly and not go jump on the next shiny object. We keep expanding. You know, Google's always changing too, so we're always staying ahead of the game, reading what they're doing. So there's a challenge with following what Google guidelines are and writing and creating content for the user. So it keeps us always learning and you know being on the backbone of what's new and what needs to be done and what needs to be changed or what helps enhance the content, right? Social media was a huge thing that you know when it first came out and everybody had to be on there, it's like, all right, now we have an opportunity to place our content in other places to be seen as opposed to just leaving it on the website and expect people to come. So there came 
an opportunity to market the content where, you know, the term content marketing came from. So it allowed us to continue growing within that niche to do that. It's very easy to get distracted because money is great. It's nice to take on that extra revenue and, and continue growing your business. I don't know that I would get distracted enough where I would start speaking and going to medical events or other events in other niches because I'm so tight into the legal one. And like you said, became an authority or an expert, if you will, in that market. So it's hard to let that go. But again, you fear the fact of complacency too. So I just actually wrote a really good article on entrepreneur.com about becoming complacent with your marketing. So you just got to be careful with both, right? It's great to be in the niche. You always got to stay ahead of the competition. Like I believe we were the first. We weren't the first SEO company or development company, but we were definitely the first content company. And now SEO companies offer content, social media companies, content marketing companies come, but we've been the pioneers. We've been doing it since 2008. We know how we do it. We built a process. We even built a software system that's going to make it more efficient, better optimized, quicker, less errors follows all the bar rules. I mean, we've implemented everything into this new software that hopefully we can launch by next year for everyone else to use. We're using it now internally. So I think we're kind of staying ahead of the game and and still investing in ourselves. I want to spend some time talking about that software in a second, but is for the business owners that are listening or people that are just starting out businesses, the debate on do they hire a digital marketing agency or not, especially in building the website, one of these ones where people believe I can just write the content and I know what people are searching for. How, if you're a business owner, I mean, you are a business owner, but if you're somebody that's trying to decide on building content and build out your website, and do you go spend money to hire an agency to do it versus trying to figure out on your own, how would you recommend going through that decision process for that, that consumer, that new business owner that's a little tight on cash and trying to figure out what to spend? We get those guys all the time, Jeremy, and it's a great question. Because I personally handle those phone calls and, you know, we're growing a sales team that's going to start doing that as well. You know, budget's a big thing because content's not cheap, right? It's an expensive process. A lot of work goes into it. A lot of people touch it. A lot of research goes into it. So if you're a new business owner and you you had the money to develop a website, first of all, if it's your first website, don't go and spend $25,000, but don't go and spend $500, right? Minimum for a website nice website for your business these days that's going to be mobile friendly. It's going to be at least, best case scenario, thirty-five dollars to $5,000. Make that investment. That's your investment. When you're thinking of your digital asset, think of your website as an asset. It is going to have a value to it. It's worth money. Once you add that content to the site, whether a company like mine writes it, you hire someone internally, or you try to do it yourself, that's going to gain value if done correctly right? Every page of content has a digital monetary value because of the Google ads, right? Google gives a keyword a cost per click price. So I can either pay Google pay-per-click money or give an ad budget for a keyword, or I can build a page about it. And now it's a 24-7 marketing machine. Now it's an asset that I own that if I'm driving the right amount of traffic and there's authority and I've built the right website, then now I don't have to pay-per-click for that. Every time I'm getting a keyword, it's costing me $5, $20 in the legal space, $140, $240, $300 per click. Now I own that keyword because I'm organically placed for it. So when a business owner is thinking about that, they want to think about who their client is, what their return on investment is, right? What's the value of a client short-term and long-term? Is it worth spending 
$250, $300 on a page of content. And obviously, you're going to need more to drive that traffic. You know, it might be short term, but long term, it's definitely going to be something that's going to convert for you. So you really want to know what the value of that client is. What, you know, a t-shirt company selling $35 t-shirts, it's not going to be worth for them to pay a whole bunch of money on content. Their content is within their inventory, their product, their social media channel, a restaurant, right? It's really about their personification, their who they are, how people see them using social media. More businesses, you know, lifestyle businesses, they probably won't need the type of content that we create, but more so service-based, you know, doctors, lawyers, financial planners, estate planners, anyone that has information to give that someone is going to research on needs to develop and invest in content because you want to be the place that is answering that person's questions or else they're going to go somebody else. So in building the content, is it a collaborative process that they're doing with you? Is it kind of, you know, the, the area really well and you're kind of driving it? Talk to me a little bit about how it works with your clients and how you decide on, on that content that you're putting together for them. Um, so the strategy and research stage is, is pretty heavy. There's also a big outreach to competitor analysis and seeing what's out there. With our niche, we're so fortunate that we've been doing it for so long that we know the foundation of the content that they need if they don't already have it. If they do have it and it's not performing, then we know how to redo it. But then we take the client's voice and they have priority content that they want. They have priority services that they may want to concentrate on. But what it's important to understand is even with those priority pages, you have to build supporting content around it, right? Again, you're building a silo. You're building a theme on something. So for instance, Attorneys love brain injuries or, or some kind of you know, bad injury so they can get the most money out of it for the client or a truck accident. The truck accident search volume is very minimal. So you want to build a site that's a silo and theme around everything that has to do with truck accidents. So that's why you go back to the main theme of personal injury. And then you're doing car accidents, you're doing truck, you're doing brain, you're doing bicycle, you're doing motorcycle. So all that content is basically telling Google, hey, look at me. I'm a ball of information on everything you want to know for a plantation truck accident lawyer or you know, Fort Lauderdale or anything like that. So you build a theme around it and all that supporting content to actually show Google and show the user that you're an authority in it. Google has something called EAT. Is, it, it should be more considered as a lead generation content than opposed to just you know, what you as the business owner think the consumer should know. It's got to be in a way that Google's going to take that information to generate more traffic to you to hopefully have people fill out information to generate. I'm using the word lead. I'm sure to try to help use that word lead, but um, using that to be able to drive it. Now, you know, this business that you build is, is heavy intensive on you and your team really working and being able to work with the individuals to do it. You talked a little bit about a software program that you use internally to help do that, that you're hoping go to the marketplace. Can you talk a little bit around that strategy? I'm assuming that so you could touch more law firms and be able to do it in a way that isn't so person intensive where you're doing it, but they can almost do some of the self-work and maybe find a more inexpensive way than having the personalized approach. My reading into what you were saying, or is that kind of how you're thinking about it? You're nailing it. And that's definitely a important aspect of it. We want to open it up to people. So we work with a lot of writers, a lot of editors. So just the management portion of so many people, 
is difficult for everyone in this industry, right? I'm in a mastermind group. And one of the guys I was talking to, he's like, man, you know, I'm just head over heels. You know, I've got so many employees. I've got so many writers. They're all doing this stuff. And it's so hard to manage. You know, this system makes it easy because based on strategy, you're tasking and you're building a process flow for everyone. And you're able to manage everyone under one umbrella and seeing exactly what they're doing. A lot of the edits have already been implemented by AI and information that we know from the industry or know from the bar associations on what can and cannot be in a piece of content. So it eliminates a lot of the editing work. You're still writing it because you got to write to the user, but uh, it helps with a lot of the management of the writer, a lot of management of the editing, and then the optimization and dictionary of words that can and cannot be used in the legal industry. And then this also, you know, moves this along the process to where it gets to the client, the client can review, edit, and then immediately post to their website. So it just eliminates a lot of, I would say maybe four or five touches. You know, it'll be a cost savings for us and it'll definitely be a cost saving for an agency that wants to use it, a law firm that wants to manage their own internal writers and editing team and be able to see exactly what's being done, who touched it last, who touched it first, and exactly see where, where everything goes. Well, and I love how you're, the strategy of you building scale on this business because you know the, the amount of time it's taking you to understand the right content to use, to be able to use multiple editors, creators, to be able to come up with that content, and understand the law associated with it, especially in the field you're working through. You, know, you want to be able to monetize that as much as you can. And if you're able to find a way to reach new markets, whether it's digital marketing agencies using your software to do it, or to be able to touch more people and more law firms where you don't have as many people touching it, it gives you a chance to scale the business fast. You know, my, my, uh, right. my father used to own car dealerships and he said the hardest part about car dealerships was all the real estate he had to own and all the people he had to manage. Exactly. So, it's tough. If, yeah. If you have a way that you've built a lot of data that can be used in a different manner and monetized. Uh, it's a great business strategy for growth. And a lot of people are thinking of just how much revenue am I getting in per client? And what you got to be constantly thinking in the back of your head is what's the data I'm building that I could be able to use and somehow monetize another way, which, you know, obviously is a trend across industries. So Alex, you, you build a pretty successful business. You've been able to build a niche for yourself. You're one of the first content creators on that. Talk a little bit about yourself, though. How did you end up uh, being co-founder of this business and co-owner of this business uh, and really uh, starting your entrepreneurial journey? So I'll go, I'll go backwards. The entrepreneurial journey started early on. I ended up working corporate life for, for a really long time. I started, you know, I dropped out of college and, you know, I went directly into banking and built an amazing 10, 12-year career in banking, almost to the executive level. When we got bought out in, in 2007, I worked for Bank of the Netherlands, AB Narrow, which was a bank out of the Amsterdam, and Citibank bought them. And then shortly after Citi took over, the market crashed, and I was out of work. My wife was in the same industry, and she was out of work. Fortunately for her, she's the smarter of the two. And you know, she was a Six Sigma Greenbelt. She was a trainer. She knew process improvement, process mapping. She knew how to turn a business around and, and knew exactly these strategies to make a process and make it an efficient process. So uh, while we were both laid off, we did very well in our business. We had two young kids at home, you know, not really stressing over everything because the bank took care of me, her bank took care of her. So it was nice to be home. But she did take on a part-time job with an old friend, lawyer friend of ours that had hired us 
years back in uh, 99, 2000 for an acting job to teach people how to use the internet in both English and Spanish. So we toured the country with him and another person named Kyla so going to low-income schools. This kind of while you were working at the banks? Oh, uh, no, no. This was, I had left, I took a sabbatical to, go, to act for a year because I, I, I went to acting school and I wanted to be an actor. So that was one of the jobs I got. And he offered a job. Hey, do you want to go on tour? You know, you did great on the PBS show. Um, we did like a PBS show and uh, teaching people how to use the internet. And he's like, man, that did well. Do you want to go on tour? And I'm like, sure. We got nothing going on. Like I took a year off and I'm like, you know, are you going to pay for everything? He's like, yeah. So I'm like, Hey, my girlfriend's out of work. Can she come too? She's an actor. And he's like, sure. She, she can do the English show with me. So we did that and became great friends, right? We toured the country, did amazing thing for, for low-income schools. Hewlett Packard was a huge sponsor for us. So, so we worked directly with them and Tara Lycos. Um, so we built a great friendship with, with Ken was his name. Eventually, he built a law firm around the same time that I got laid off. He was building his law firm. He had like five people. And he's like, uh, you know, my wife called him, said how things were going. He's like, hey, I'm so glad you called. I've got an excellent opportunity for you. You're so great. Come into the office. Um, I'm building this website. Apparently, I got to do this content stuff. Why don't you sit in here, interview me, and we'll build this site together. So one thing turned into another. The website launched and the company that built the website for Ken after it launched said, what the heck did you guys do? We've never seen anything like this. It is like the traffic to this website, the leads that you're getting, we've never seen anything. What did you do? So they said, well, we built all this content. We did all this. And he's like, absolutely amazing. I'm about to lose a client. Do you think you could do the same thing? And we're like, all right, we'll try. So, you know, Yvette had a couple writers at that time. Yvette is my wife and they did it for that site. Then he brought another one. So we sat down with Ken and said, I think we got a business here. Will you help us, you know, figure it out? You know, he's, he was a real entrepreneur, had a good business mindset. You know, he helped us kind of get things flowing, got started. At that point, I came on and started doing business development. And from there, it just one attorney after another, after another, after another. And here we are 13 years later. You know, we definitely had our ups and downs, market crashes and stuff, but we're in a real, really good place. Thank God. What was the hardest transition corporate life to running your own business? All of it. I love the structure of being corporate, you know, almost at nine to five, you knew you were getting paid and I was getting paid a lot of money. I was early twenties, maybe by the time I ended early thirties. So, you know, I was telling Fahad about this, building that complacency of, of corporate life, of knowing where, where your money's coming from every month and not thinking that it would ever end to losing that ego of all that money, all that opportunity of who you were up top, you know, how people thought of you to starting from scratch and making less than what a busboy was to start this business and trying to see the vision. And all right, you know, what's it going to take to make $40,000 a year again? All right, how many clients do I need? What's it going to take to make 50, right? You know, fortunately, we had good financial decisions and we never were in a bad, bad place, but, you know, it was scary. So, you know, trying to develop everything, cold calling, reaching out to people, building my own structure, which I still, you know, struggle with is, is uh, not having, you know, having to build my own structure and discipline is a lot harder than when somebody's on top of you making you do it. Right. Um, so that was a struggle, you know, for years trying I to build it. I think you would have made the decision to be an entrepreneur if, uh, you know, Credit bubbled in first and the banks had to make certain decisions. I think it was always in my heart. My dad was an entrepreneur. His brothers were, 
you know, as a little boy, I remember him traveling and I couldn't wait to do the same things. And, you know, sometimes when I'm traveling and going somewhere, you know, I, I just look up and, you know, thank him and obviously thank God. And, you know, I couldn't believe how, how you manifest things in your life so easily. You know, although I always wanted that, I never knew or, or trusted myself or had the confidence that I could do it. So being forced into that situation and pushed into it is one of those things that forces you. You have no other choice, right? You're either going to sink or you're going to swim. And, you know, I, I chose to swim and my wife did and, and we built something and I would do it all over again. I look for more entrepreneurship opportunities now. It's, it's all I want. When I talk to my nephews and my kids, that's what I push, right? I'm all about entrepreneurship. What advice do you have for people that are looking to become an entrepreneur or start their own business? There's several. One is understand business and the structure, understand numbers, always know your numbers. You know, you got to know what things cost, how much time it takes, what do you do with it? You know, there's a foundational business mindset that we failed on and luckily we had help, but it's still one of those things where you don't really think about it if you don't have that knowledge. Like if you were going to go to school something and didn't know what you were going to go to school for and the opportunities there for you, I would always go for business, business or law. So, you know, obviously, you know, it's a, even P&Ls in a corporate Fortune 500 company are kind of funny P&Ls. They're not real P&Ls, you know, there's not a point where if you lose a little bit of money, there's expenses that are embedded in that aren't real expenses, or you're not even paying expenses you should be paying. So talk a little bit about how you learn that financial piece, because a lot of people just struggle with cash flow and understanding how to manage cash flow early on. How did you learn those aspects of the business? Obviously, you say you skimmed your knees in that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Folks, you know, what'd you what'd you pull into to find that information? Man, learning QuickBooks. I mean, I was in banking, right? So I knew numbers. I knew how to. I you know, I was managing other people's books back then. So, but managing my own and and learning QuickBooks and all that was was new to me, but interesting. So that lawyer was instrumental in in helping and guiding. You know, that was always my role in the businesses managing the finances. And even still, I didn't get it right. Like there's different things. There's tax things you got to think about. There's cash flow. There's, you know, revenue in, revenue out. You know, there's also expenses, assets. So there's so much to think about and learn. So you definitely want to learn that. But eventually, you know, once we grew big enough, you hire people smarter than you. And we have an amazing bookkeeper and accountant that works with us that cleaned everything up even though, you know, I, I did the best job I could do, you know, always hire better and smarter than you are. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So pause on that part, because I think one of the things I've found with a lot of the business owners that I've worked with is they struggle with finding talent. And, you know, they don't want to pay a search firm. They can't find the right search firm. To do it. And they end up hiring either friends or, you know, somebody, they, the first person they got referred to is the person they end up hiring. Uh, and doing it, and you're, in, and you're making a, a great point around hiring people that are a lot better than you, a lot more experienced, a lot more knowledgeable in those areas that you're trying to fill. Any recommendations you have for people as you're trying to start to fill some roles? Like a bookkeeper is a good example. Like, how do you even start to find the right one? You make a lot of mistakes along the way. One rule from a good friend of mine is hire slow and fire quick. Hiring friends and family definitely not the best idea. You know, we did hire a friend once. We've made those choices of, hey, here, I know this person, they could do this for you to avoid costs, right? So you make those mistakes and, and you learn. You're going to make them, right? We all learn by making mistakes. But you want to 
use a system. So when hiring, like, you know, ask a lot of questions, really look into their social profiles, which is amazing that we have that now. Don't believe what you see, right? Like I was telling Fahad, he's like, what got you into marketing? I go, man, I've been marketing myself ever since I was a little kid, right? I can bullshit my way through any kind of interview. And people can do the same thing to me, right? Like I've hired people that they've sold me, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge. And I'm like, fuck, these guys are going to be amazing, right? But then they end up and can't execute, right? It's all that dreamer mentality that I can talk my way, but I don't know how to execute anything. So you kind of lose out. I always tell people the best you're ever going to see somebody is during the interview. They're never going to be any better than you see them in the interview. Right. So if your gut tells you and they're a little unsure in the interview, they're not going to impress you more. Yeah, they're not going to get any better than that. But yeah, my friend actually has a, a uh, not a hiring service, but a testing system. So that's a system that that we've begun to use is before we bring on anyone else, we want them to go through a personality test, a compatibility test, cultural test, you know, what their thought processes are. Do they align with ours? Do they align with that? You know, because anybody can lie about what they did in school and what they've done before. Yep. Yep. Great points. Now, you mentioned, you know, some of the you know, hiring people just who you know, but yet you're in business with your wife. And obviously, she you know helped create the content. Can you talk a little bit about what's been really positive in being business and a spouse, but then also how you work through some of the challenges of uh, both uh, working together at home, running a household with kids, along with business, and kind of always having um, you know your lives intertwined. I wouldn't change it for the world. I think the only time it becomes an issue is when we're having issues with the business, and it's never a pointing fingers thing. We both know where our strengths and weaknesses are. She manages the staff and operations and process. I manage the marketing, networking, and and business development. I stay in my lane. She stays in hers. When it comes to hiring and managing people, I'm horrible at it. That's why she does it. That's why we have a great staff that does it. So it's been amazing. But you you have those hard conversations where it's like, now we're home. And we're like, damn, we're going through some struggles. And, you know, it can get a little heated because I don't want to use the word ignorance, but not knowing enough, right? We all have our limits. So when neither one of you have a solution for something, it, it can become frustrating. And that's where you where you need that third party. And I think, you know, we're headed into a space where once we do a little bit more business development and growth, that we'll bring on probably a well-renowned and, you know, intelligent and someone that's been in in our space to actually come manage the business more like a CEO that has a business mind that knows everything that knows how to grow and take companies to the next level. Because I think you hit a cap on your own knowledge. And like I said earlier, you always got to bring in people that, that are smarter than you are. But it's amazing working with my wife. I love spending time with her. You know, we get that space away from home to miss each other when I go travel and come back. And you know, that she hates that part, right? She's not a networker. She doesn't want to talk the fluff or build relationships. And her focus is at home and and that's it. And with our kids and, and our staff and to have to go meet people and, you know, schmooze, go drinking, nice dinners. It's not about her. It's that, you know, I'll take that all day long. Right. It's not a bad deal. You guys it's done. not a bad deal. It's not a bad deal. And sometimes I'm like, man, this is work. I just was in Houston for a conference and one of my good lawyer friends, we all flew together to Houston for a conference. And he was sitting in first classes and I'm walking to the back. He says, hey, cancel your flight home. I got us a private jet. How do you say no to that, right? Like, how fortunate are you? You know, when did I think ever in my life that I'd be flying in private jets with champagne and, you know, some of the top lawyers in the country? And, you know, you you just never imagine it. So yeah, that's a good lead to the next question. Uh, can you share with me your most memorable day of your career? And it doesn't matter if it's with your business currently, it was back with the bank, and this could be 
a positive thing. It could be an interesting story or a memorable day because it was a, a pivotal change in, in kind of the course of your life. Um, but what would you say is your most memorable day? I have to go back when I was in the banking industry. Again, I've always been self-conscious about not finishing school, right? I was in an environment where everybody had MBAs. They you know, either had a law degree, a business degree, something, right? So I was one of the people that, you know, worked myself up just because I marketed and I worked hard. So I've always self-conscious of that. And I was managing a team of four account executives, not managing. I, I was their internal account manager and I worked for this guy named Tim Hood. You know, I managed all his banks and he would always tell me, man, these people are amazing. They love you. What is it? What, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, you did so great that I'm going to take you on a trip. We're going to go on a road trip and we're going to meet everybody because everybody wants to meet you. So we were in the car and I was like real, real self-conscious. I'm like, man, I don't know, you know, that I feel like I'm at the level to meet all these business owners, like these entrepreneurs and, you know, rich Connecticut that own banks and all this stuff. I don't see myself at their level. And he's like, dude, shut up. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? Like, why would you ever say that about yourself? And he's like, you need to value who you are. Do you realize what you've done for my business? He goes, we had four account executives. He goes, we fired them all just so you can manage me and the other two account executives because they weren't doing the job that you were doing. So not only did you do it for me, but you did it for two other account executives and turned their business around by 150% when nobody else could do it. He goes, value who you are. And never because you think you're young or not educated, do you not feel that confidence? You stand up. We're all human. And that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. I pulled up my pants. I was like, you know what? You're right. And I got to be myself in front of these people. And, you know, I started feeling confident and comfortable around, you know, people that I either thought had money or, or a better education or, or um, you know, just a better business model or thought process. So uh, just equalizing, making yourself an equal to everybody was, was a huge and most amazing moments. Oh, that's awesome. That, that, that's a great story. And, you know, there's um, most successful people tend to have a, a level of wanting to show they're worthy for the position. And I was reading an article, was, um, I, I might have told this story before the episode, but CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I think it was like a paper company or an industrial company. And when he asked about, uh, they asked him something about a job, he goes, every day I'm trying to show that I'm qualified for the position I'm in. And this is CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And I read that and you know, there's all the roles I've been. I always wonder, I'm like, am I ready for this? Can I, do I have the right skill set to do this? Is somebody going to, somebody should be in this role that's better than me? And I think back to that quote, because this guy is what you would deem and look on the outside as a very successful person. I believe grad all through there. And the guy's every day trying to make sure he becomes qualified for the job, to be honest. And that mentality is helpful sometimes because it makes you work harder than a lot of other people. As long as it doesn't knock off your confidence and allow it to be not you who you are, like you say. So that was a great story and a great pivotal time. Last question for you. Do you have a favorite failure? And I say failure because I know most people, well, I don't, I don't consider it a failure. It was a learning experience. I get all the pieces associated with that. But maybe you know um, something that was a setback to you that you look going, you know what? That was something I, at the time, I was pretty upset about or I was disappointed about. But it was really something that kind of, you know, created the next step uh, for where I'm at. Or it was just a good story. <laughs> right. Know, it's a good story. I mean, I, I have uh, tons of those. But I think the main one that, you know, kind of correlates with what we're talking about is being complacent in that 
corporate job in the banking industry. It was definitely one of the most amazing companies and people that I ever worked with. Tim was one of those, um, you know, a guy named Mike Griffith, Garth Graham, you know, people that I still am friends with. You know, if I were ever to start another company, it would be with those people because they were so instrumental in our growth. But being fired and laid off during that market crash forced both my wife and I to take the risk and jump into this entrepreneurship that allowed us to be where we are today, but more importantly, where we were day to day growing this business. Like what this business allowed us to do is what most families in this country don't. And my goal was always to be present for my kids. My dad was gone a lot growing up just because he traveled all over the world doing his business. But even though I knew he was trying to provide, it sucked him not being around, right? So me being around for my kids, even though, you know, maybe I was thinking about work and I might have not been mentally present, I dropped them off to school. I picked them up. I volunteered in all of their sports activities. I was either, you know, room dad or something like that, or my wife was. So being able to do that, being able to shut down, be pulled away from all the money, right? Like all the glory, everything that you could ever want to the humility of just enjoying life and the people around you made a big difference. And our company has allowed us that lifestyle and I wouldn't change it for the world. I love that. And I, you, know, you mentioned about spending time. Like my father was the same way. He joked he'd always work half days, 12 hours a day. Uh, that, was, that was the only, he was gone all the time. Um, Sundays was the only day that he was around because in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, it was blue sky laws. Car dealerships weren't allowed to be open on Sundays. Right. Then he would just write marketing ads and work most of the time. And, you know, if, for me, when it came to my kids, it was the same deal. I knew that I might not get the quantity of time that I wanted to, but I made sure the quality of time was there. And so, you know, seeing the, taking my kids to school is an important piece to it. But it's, you know, if I'm going to be there this Saturday, how do I be as present as I can be and make a memorable experience that Saturday that I'm with the kids? And, and I really focus in on the quality side. And I don't think I, when I was in a corporate career, similarly, I was 15 years in corporate, I didn't focus in on that. You kind of get stuck into that race and you get stuck around everything else and you got other people that want you at certain things. And, you know, you, you're, you don't get to decide on your priorities as much as you do as an entrepreneur. And uh, it's nice how entrepreneurship can create that. You're still going to think about your business. Right. At all times. You might forget a little bit about it in a word for space or it's artificial pressure. You get in a corporate atmosphere and it's a real pressure you might get as an entrepreneur, cash flow things. But yeah, that, that, that was a uh, pivotal moment for me too. So Alex, I really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully people got a, a better sense of when to build content on the website, uh, the idea of riches and the niches. Uh, and along with that, to uh, and starting their entrepreneurial journey where they should spend time in understanding uh, how to run the financials and the cash. Yeah. And uh, even partnering with your spouse can actually work and be very successful. For sure. <laughs> okay. Alex, thanks for the time. It was a great time. Appreciate talk. it. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you listening to the Youpreneur podcast. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and also share the podcast for people you think might find it interesting. Along with that, if you're an entrepreneur or thinking about becoming a business owner, a great resource to take a look at is our partners at SCORE, where you see retired executives being able to help mentor new budding entrepreneurs. You can find them at SCORE.org, or in particular, we're in a partnership with Broward SCORE if you're in South Florida. Along with that, check us out on our Instagram. It's Upreneur. That's Upreneur with a U, not Y-O-U. 
that U stands for the University of Entrepreneurs, here to be able to give you and learn from the best and the brightest of entrepreneurs here in Florida. I appreciate you listening. Have a great day.